3: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
4: Sean Harris-Smith to work. There's Dante Scott, but a rough night offensively for the veteran. Drives inside. Kept the bucket
1: and the foul. Just his second field goal of the night.
4: And what a time for it. That was the Terps last night. I was there. I was at Xfinity Center with uh, with my good friend Harley from Window Nation and David, good friend of his. We had a great time. Good seats. Thank you, uh, Maryland family. And they won. They won a Big Ten game, their second Big Ten game of the year in Denton. That was getting close to one of the worst starts to a season that Maryland's had in a long, long time. I mean, they were down seven in the second half to Penn State. They were in overtime against Penn State. I have no idea how good Penn State is or isn't. I know this. They lost to Bucknell. Uh, they had lost to Butler and VCU and Texas A&M, who's hi- highly ranked. They had lost four games in a row coming in. Um, none of the games that they had lost were that close. They were all you know, close to double-digit, if not double-digit, losses. But the Terps, who have really struggled here early in the season, in Kevin Willard's second year, a team that I thought, and a lot of people thought before the season started, should have been ranked. Um, they had ba- basically everybody coming back with the exception of uh, Hakeem Hart and Ian Martinez and Patrick Emelian, who they you know probably miss a little bit more than maybe they thought they would miss, um, and they've had a rough start to the season trying to put everything together with you know a couple of freshmen, uh, Kaiser and Deshaun Harris Smith, who are being worked into the lineup. And um, I'll tell you one thing, man. Imagine if Uterp fans like I am, imagine what we would be with what we would be without Jameer Young. I mean, we could have said that last year. But Jameer Young is one of the best shot creators and scorers uh, at that position in the Big Ten. He was preseason, I think, first team all Big Ten. He had 28 last night, 8 rebounds, 3 assists... Um, 12-for-12 from the free-throw line as he essentially willed them to victory. Uh, Juju Reese also last night, 24-15, and actually shot it really well from the free-throw line in the second half. And I think really Jamie Kaiser's uh, game last night was the first game in which I think Terp fans, we said, all right, we got a guy that can actually shoot it because they have struggled to shoot. Um, and he was only two for eight from the floor, two for seven from behind the arc, but all of them looked pretty good. They all looked like they were going in. He also had four steals on the night and ten points. The key, though, for Maryland, listen closely, Terp fans. I know that, you know, for whatever reason, a lot of you are down on Dante Scott. Dante Scott is going to have to be a 12-14 to point a night scorer if this team's going to be what we all think it should be which is a tournament team, um, because I would imagine, and I've not talked to Kevin Willard about this, I would imagine that defensively he really wants Dante on the floor for this team. And if he's going to be hesitant to pull the, the string offensively or if he's going to sc- shoot it so poorly, they're going to really struggle because you can't in the Big Ten have two guys that can score and nobody else, and actually go through that league and end up with, you know, a record good enough to make the NCAA tournament. So that will be the challenge. You know, they've got, you know, they got some pieces um, right now. Doesn't look like they've got a ton of depth, which is a little bit troubling in the Big Ten, especially with the way they like to play, which is they would prefer to play up tempo. They'd prefer to pressure you a little bit. Um, but, uh, Dante Scott for me, and he hit a big shot in overtime last night. I was really happy for him, uh, and then missed the free throw. Um, but he had 10 rebounds last night and Dante can guard almost any position defensively. And, uh, he's going to have to come around offensively. And I bet he will. There will be games in which Dante Scott will be a key for them. Uh, but I know a lot of Maryland fans are frustrated with Dante. I can, I can tell sitting in that crowd, and I can tell based on my Twitter notifications, and I'm just telling you, they need him. They need him, and they need him to be a 12-14 to point-a-night scorer in the Big Ten. They need him to be their third scorer, minimum. Uh, because he's too valuable defensively at times with his versatility defensively to have off the floor, and they had him off the floor a lot last night. They had Kaiser in there a lot. I think they can play him together. Um, But uh, good win for Maryland in that they couldn't lose that game last night. That would have made for a long holiday lead-up. They've got Alcorn State, they've got Nichols State, so you know, two wins there, and then they go to Pauly Pavilion to play UCLA on December twenty-second. And then a week and a half after that, Purdue at home on January 2nd. Uh it's not it's brutal in the Big Ten. And to have those two games with a couple of, you know, of those games holiday time that you gotta play, you gotta, you know, build up some wins. Um, that's going to be a brutal stretch. We'll see if, if they are improved. Uh, the one thing I, I believe in is I believe in Kevin Willard, and I think he'll figure it out. I think he'll figure it out. I think last night was the beginning of kind of figuring it out to a certain degree. Shortened it up a little bit on the bench in terms of minutes, um, and I thought Deshaun Harris-Smith had some big moments in overtime in particular that maybe you know could be a springboard for him to some confidence offensively. Um, Maryland out-rebounded Penn State last night, 53-31. to 31. My son said, have you ever seen a disparity like that? And I said, look at the shooting numbers. Look at how many shots they missed. Uh, when you miss a lot of shots, there are a lot of chances for uh, rebounds, and they really pounded the offensive glass last night, which is one of those ways, basketball people, you guys understand this, when you have a team that struggles to score... Sometimes you just say just get it up on the rim and have 3 to 4 guys chase it with one guy back because you can generate offense that way sometimes. Um and they did that last night. Uh anyway, um nice night in College Park. Good god, man. I've said this before and it's going to sound like just, you know, too much complaining, but the Big Ten really doesn't do Maryland um, a solid by scheduling these 7 o'clock games. and hour and 15 minutes to get out there from Bethesda in rush hour traffic. That's ridiculous students showed up really good student showing last night and you know we all know as Maryland fans what the really good crowds are versus the you know not so great crowds I'd say it was 75 percent full 70 percent full but the students were there which made it uh you know a definite home court advantage last night which helped them get by Penn State all right there's your Uh, What Kevin did last night and Maryland basketball tied into the same conversation. We probably won't get back to them until they're getting ready to play UCLA on the 22nd. They have not been to Pauley Pavilion. They've played UCLA several times over the years. They have not been to Pauley Pavilion since 1982. They played a game out there with Adrian Branch as a freshman, and they got run Uh, It was one of Lefty's teams that was not a great team, wasn't a tournament team. Um, 1981, excuse me, but it would have been 81, I think. 82 was Bias' freshman year, which would have been a, a, a tournament year. Bias went to the tournament all four years uh, they lost in the second round to Houston, who went on to lose to NC State in the finals. Maryland actually played that that Houston team that lost to Valvano's um, NC State team in the finals. They played them in the second round of the tournament that year. Actually had the lead at halftime against Houston, ended up losing uh, the game. Um, and then the second year, they were in the Sweet 16 with Bias. Third year, they were in the Sweet 16 with Bias. The third year, they were in the Sweet 16 with Bias. They lost to Villanova, who went on to win the national championship. And then in his final year, they lost an absolute crusher to UNLV in the second round with a nine-point lead with about eight minutes to go, and they blew it and lost. Uh, And that looked like a team that had a chance to make a big run. Um, All right, there you go. Hour and 15 minutes, Bethesda to College Park for a 7 o'clock start. Seven thirty would make all the difference in the world, but it's it's all about the Big Ten Network and their scheduling. I mean, we, they, they they've had six thirty starts before, which are even worse. What are you going to do? How about John Rom? John Rom is bolting the PGA Tour for the Live Tour for a reported six hundred million dollars. Uh, the Wall Street Journal, I think, was the first to report this. Um, and I don't know how you can be upset with some of these players who are taking this kind of money. There isn't anybody that would would turn down this kind of money. Tiger did. He was offered, what, $900 million a couple of years ago by the Live Tour. Steve Sands is going to jump on with us at noon to talk about this, also talk about Tiger's return to golf last week, but Sands will want to talk about Sam Howell more than – uh, Tiger Woods um, or John Rom, but we will have Sands on the show as well, uh, and then Juan Soto headed to the Yankees in a seven-player deal with the Padres. Uh, amazing! Remember, he's only under contract for one more year. He'll make thirty-three million as a Yankee, and then they're going to have to re-sign him. Man, it it really it reeks. It, it doesn't reek of wrong uh, verb. It 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 certainly feels like the Yankees have to win this coming season uh, because of the season they had last year. And then they'll hope to re-sign him. Um, but the Yankees' odds to win the World Series after the news of the Soto trade went from 15-2 to two, to 15-2. to two. So basically cut in half uh, to win the World Series with Soto. Uh, there. Um, They have the best World Series odds currently in the American League, third best in overall uh, Major League Baseball behind the Braves and the Dodgers. And what does it do to a team when you lose Juan Soto? Will you go from 16 to 1 to win the World Series as the Padres were yesterday to 32 to 1 now? Um, Not good. Uh, Did we talk about this yesterday, Denton? That first of all, we we we've had some you know we 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 previewed like a week ago some of these horrendous um, national television games uh, you know that are upcoming in the NFL season. Now Sunday night's going to be great. Sunday night you've got Dallas, Philadelphia, but tonight features New England at Pittsburgh. Bailey Zappi against Mitch Trubisky. If you haven't seen this. I don't think we talked about this, did we yet or not? The, no, the total for we, this game? No, we have not. I haven't I haven't even seen the total. Okay. So, I'll ask you since we, you know, we both are immersed in this world, what do you think it is?
0: Um, so let's see. I I don't want to get too caught up, but there's no way these teams are going to score a ton. I will say 29 and a half.
4: Oh, wow. Okay, so you nailed it. It's 30.
0: Oh, I just missed it. I've been so used And it is the
4: lowest. It's the lowest total in the NFL since 1993. That was a game played between the Patriots and the Bengals, and that was 30 and a half. I think it was. Um, And so this is right now. As of now, let's see if it goes off at this. The lowest total since then. That was a weather game back in 93. This is not a weather game. The weather is not going to be awful in Pittsburgh. This is just a matchup between two teams that can't score. The Patriots, listen to the Patriots' last three games. The 10-6 loss against Indy in Frankfurt. I think that was in Frankfurt. 10-7 the next week against the Giants. And then they lost 6 to nothing to the Chargers. Washington put up 20 on New England's defense. Um, Meantime, Pittsburgh scored 10 points against Arizona, 16 in a win against Cincinnati, 10 in a loss to Cleveland. That's their last three. So we have talked a lot about over-under totals this year in football, mostly stemming from the Iowa situation in college football, as they set record after record. But this NFL season, we have seen a lower scoring season, defenses reemerge, and the 30 total for tonight's Thursday night game is just barely the lowest total of the weekend. Jacksonville Cleveland right now is at 31, although I do see some 30 and a halves out there. And that's because it looks like Trevor Lawrence. Isn't going to play, and it'll be C.J. Beathard. C.J. Beathard, right? Yeah. C.J. Yeah. C.J. Beathard?
0: Beathard. Yeah.
4: Um. So that total is thirty-one. Houston and the Jets is thirty-three. I can't remember lower totals. The Giant-Packer game Monday night is thirty-six in the NFL. I honestly can't remember this many low totals in one NFL weekend. I, there's got to be something covers or, or you know, um, uh, a couple the action network, somebody's going to have whether or not this is the lowest average over under total for an NFL weekend ever. It's going to be close. There've been some end of season weather Sundays where you know you get some big storm in the northeast and wind and snow and sleet and you get a lot of you know uh, a lot of games affected that'll drop the totals but you've got a 30 you've got a 30 and a half or 31 and you've got a 33 this week. Man, did the jet think about this? How much is the jet defense respected? is they're playing a team that can score in Houston, and the total is low. Houston's totals the last four weeks, 46-48, 48-47, and they're going to play in a game this week that's 33. The Jets' defense is, especially at home, the most respected defense in the league. Um, Even more so, I think, than Cleveland's Denton. I think from an odds-maker standpoint, it might be even more respected than Cleveland's defense. Uh, some good NFL games. We'll have tomorrow to talk about a lot of them. I, I mentioned in our NFL buy and sell segment yesterday that I was buying a two-team parlay with Buffalo plus yesterday was two and a half three, um, and Dallas laying the 3-3.5 three, three Sunday night. I like Dallas and Buffalo a lot this coming weekend. Well, the sharp money is coming in big time on Buffalo. That line is down to one and a half, one at Arrowhead Sunday. Okay, there is, there is some lost confidence from odds makers in the Chiefs for the first time in a long time. I would bet you that that's the lowest favorite, the least amount Kansas City's been favored since Mahomes became Mahomes at home. Don't you think, Denton, there's no way that they've been a one- or a one-and-a-half-point favorite at home during the Mahomes era?
0: Yeah, I would uh, I would think that is right. I'm trying to think because...
4: I mean, I can find the information pretty some, easily. There
0: were, some, there were some games against... They've been a dog on the road. Yeah, they've definitely been a dog on the road, but I don't know if they might have been a one-point favorite in a game against Cincinnati when those two teams were kind of like in the, the championship game. No, not at the championship game, but I think there might've been a regular season game where it might've been close. I, I just don't remember if that game was in Cincinnati or Kansas city.
4: Do you remember um, that game?
0: It was, it was prior to them beating them in the championship and they came back in the regular season. I don't know. You could be, you could be right. I, I can't imagine there's been uh, any other time outside of a game. Against here, I'm
4: going to tell you, I've got it right. I got it right in front of me. You ready? So this year at home they were a four and a half point favorite. Remember, it came down from six because of the Kelsey injury against Detroit in the opener. They were a thirteen point favorite at home against Chicago. Ten and a half point favorite at home against Denver. Six and a half point favorite at home against the Chargers. Um, they were home against Philadelphia on Monday Night Football. They were two and a half three point favorite over the Eagles. All right, last year um, at home. They were a four-point favorite over the Chargers, seven-and-a-half over the Raiders. Wait a minute. You're right. It's, it wasn't Cincinnati. They were two-and-a-half point. What, did Mahomes play against Buffalo last year at home? Yeah, yeah, I believe so. Who didn't play? Because they were a two-and-a-half point underdog at home against Buffalo last year and lost 24-20. to 20.
0: Let me let me find that box score. Um, I, I'm
4: looking at it right now. Yeah, I'm no, Mahomes if, played
0: in that one. Looked like everybody played in that one.
4: Yeah, it says here that they were two-and-a-half-point dog. I don't remember that. Anyway, um, there's some definite loss of confidence in Kansas City, that's for sure. And there's the desperation of Buffalo having to win this game and Buffalo coming off their bye week. Um, we've got a good late window with Buffalo KC, and then Philadelphia Dallas at night, Sunday night. The Monday night games are not great. Tennessee, Miami, Green Bay, New York, although Green Bay is definitely surging. Um, and then, you know, not a great Thursday night game next week for Amazon either. We'll hear a lot of a lot of bitching from Al Michaels tonight and next week. They got the Chargers and the Raiders. At least they'll be in Vegas for that. Um, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. A lot of quarterbacks, a lot of backup quarterbacks are going to play in the NFL this weekend. Uh, Let's get to a what do you got. Computer lagging right now. There we go. So this is what I got. I saw this yesterday afternoon, and maybe some of you did as well. Washington um, had five players listed among the top 10 at their position in the early Pro Bowl voting by fans. Sam Howell was in the top 10 just barely. He was the 10th quarterback out of the 16 quarterbacks, I would guess, that are available in the NFC. Jonathan Allen was the 8th um, vote-getter for defensive tackles for the Pro Bowl, the NFC Pro Bowl team, in this first vote you know, by fans. Antonio Gibson for returner was 7th. Cam Curl for strong safety was fourth. And then, of course, Terrell Burgess was first for special teams player in the NFC Pro Bowl voting. Terrell Burgess, I said. Of course it was Terrell Burgess. I saw that yesterday and I thought, have I just completely missed something this season? What am I missing? Who is Terrell Burgess? Now, to be truthful, I actually knew who Terrell Burgess was, but was completely floored that Terrell Burgess is the number one vote-getter for special teams players in the NFC. He's only played in eight games. He's played 198 special team snaps. And I don't know. We're not paying a lot of attention to special teams other than Cheeseman snaps and Slys kicks and Tressways punts. you know, um, last year Jeremy Reeves definitely stood out during the course of the year. I've mentioned, I went back through my notes yesterday, my game notes from every game and and to see, you know when I when I list the things that I like from the games, I have mentioned Tressway, Cam Cheeseman, and Joey Sly a lot on the list of things that I liked or didn't like. I've also mentioned one other, two other special teams players, Antonio Gibson as a kickoff returner, and Quan Martin, who I think has actually at times stood out in coverage, and punt coverage. They really don't have any kickoff coverage because Sly doesn't allow kickoff returns. He kicks them out of the end zone almost every single time. I think he leads the league in touchbacks. Um, Terrell Burgess is number 32 in your program. And my only thought, and I don't know this to be a fact, again, I will con- I'll consider the possibility that all of you out there know who Terrell Burgess is and have been watching him all year long in the eight games that he's played and have been blown away with his punt coverage and his blocking on special teams. Um, it is. It has not stood out to me. Okay, there was actually a play in which I think he was penalized for a hit out of bounds, and that's that's why I think I knew his name and his jersey number. Um, what I think happened was, and I could be completely wrong about this. I think that Pro Bowl voters saw that Jeremy Reeves was the Pro Bowl vote-getter number one last year. Remember that wonderful video that the team put out with Ron Rivera surprising him with the news? It was very touching and very well done. Um, I think they just thought they were voting for the Washington Pro Bowl special teams guy that was the guy last year. Because fans don't pay attention to special teams play unless it's a big-time returner, and you have a, a category for that that's a standalone category. Gibson's seventh in the voting on returners. I think it's a. I think they thought they were voting for Jeremy Reeves. That's my guess. I could be wrong. I D- Denton, were you familiar with Terrell Burgess's work?
0: <laughs> no, I was. Uh, I was not. I thought it was a typo when I saw it on Twitter, and that that's going to come off as disrespectful. But I just the guy has seven tackles. And like for Pro Bowl voting, like you're voting based on like this isn't like you're grading the film and you think he does a really good job setting the edge. A fan isn't gonna recognize that when you're watching a game on a Sunday. You're just voting for for the names that you like on there. So I was a little surprised when I saw his name. I'm happy for him. I hope he gets it, but I was a little surprised.
4: So one thing I'm gonna correct myself on now, on, on now, and and it, because I'm looking at something that Ben sent me, um, it has nothing to do with Terrell Burgess and that is that the Pro Bowl balloting from the fan vote is not conference-specific. So when I said that Sam was 10th among quarterbacks in Pro Bowl voting, that's both conferences. That's, that's far different. Far different than what I said. Um, as an example, you know, looking at Cameron Curl as the fourth strong safety, two of the four in front of him are AFC players. Kyle Hamilton is the number one vote getter in Baltimore. Uh, Derwin James with the Chargers. Reed Blankenship with Philadelphia. So Cameron Curl has a chance to make the Pro Bowl, certainly as a as a um, as a backup. Worst case alter- you know, an alternate. Uh, Jonathan Allen, among defensive tackles, is eighth in vote getting, and among NFC players, he's fourth behind Hargrave, Donald, and Jalen Carter. Uh, and then for quarterbacks, Sam Howell is 10th, but among the NFC quarterbacks, it's Prescott one hurts two, purdy three Goff four, Sam Howell five. He's not going to make the pro bowl, but you know, you know how many of these guys drop from, and the pro bowl, remember is, is a different style now of, you know, flag and whatever, and whatever it is. I don't, I didn't even watch it last year. Um, but uh, it's the honor of being named a Pro Bowl quarterback. I mean, he could end up being an alternate if people drop.
0: Are you ready for an off of debating whether or not Sam is the guy moving forward and getting a ton of calls claiming that he's a Pro Bowler, so we
4: have to keep him? No, I'm not. I'm not <laughs> dreading any of that talk. Actually, it's funny. It's perfect. Um, perfect. Uh, into uh, I want to read this quick tweet from Denny. Kevin, I loved what Yanni said yesterday about the draft and Sam Howell, but could you do a show if you just said what Yanni said? That's way too sensible and boring. Uh, Thank you, Denny. For those of you who weren't listening to the show yesterday, that's okay. But Yanni tweeted, um, Kevin, if they think a quarterback in the draft at their draft position is much better than Sam Howell, then pick him. If not, then don't. Um, I thought that was a rather sensible uh, view. Uh, and is certainly the way that they should approach it. Hey, if there's a guy we got a chance to get that's much better than Sam Howell, we're going to pick him. And if we don't think that about the guys that we've got a chance to draft, we're not. Like, essentially what it comes down to. It's like, you know, a lot of the conversations you have this time of year with friends and family members, holiday time, and you get into these debates, especially, by the way, in the beginning of an election year, oh wow! I don't know about your house, but it gets—you know—I've said this before. It starts with sports, goes to politics, and it ends with with religion. And the religion sometimes is actually the thing that gets everybody back together for some reason. Uh, but somebody said something over Thanksgiving that was just too sensible, and it's—it's—it reminded me of what Yanni. Um, tweeted to me yesterday. We, there was a conversation going on about you know voter fraud, which turned into something about voter suppression. And somebody just said, you know, I just want it to be easy for people who are eligible to vote to vote. And I want it to be hard for people who are ineligible to vote to vote. That's all. <laughs> yeah. If they love a quarterback at their draft position that they think is much better than Sam Howell, then pick him. If they don't, don't. Um, Can I do a show that way? Of course. I think a lot of my opinions tend to be similar to Yanni's. Sometimes. And, of course, then you get accused for straddling the fence. Uh, Look, we're going to have opinions for sure. We already have opinions, and we'll have opinions by the time we get to the end of the year. Would Sam Howell being a Pro Bowl quarterback in the NFC change My opinion, it wouldn't, Denton. First of all, I mean, you've had some injuries to quarterbacks, you know, um, in the NFC, right? Uh, No Daniel Jones, no Kirk Cousins. Justin Fields has been in and out of the lineup all year long. Um, Derek Carr has actually been banged up, but has played. You know, primarily Matt Stafford's been banged up; has missed a game or two. Geno Smith just isn't having a good season. He was a Pro Bowler last year, um, so you've got a lot of that going on. I think, you know, I I think we talked about this last week to a certain degree, but I'll just say it again: like Sam Howell leads the league in interceptions. He leads the league in sacks, and it's not even close. His QBR number is ranked 21st in the league. His passer rating is ranked 23rd in the league. Yes, he's thrown for a lot of yards, currently the second most yards. But again, as I've mentioned to you before, there are a lot of quarterbacks just barely behind him that have played one less game and one ahead of them in C.J. Stroud that's also played one less game. One less game. So you don't look at total yards because eventually when we get to the end of the season, everybody's played or had the opportunity to play 17 games. Sam Howell currently in average passing yards per game, it's impressive. I'm not saying it isn't, but it's seventh. Okay, it's not first. I hear this over and over again. Sam Howell is leading the league in passing yards. He's second, actually. He it's, there has been a moment or two where he's led the league in passing yards. But again, because people get their buys at different time, like right now in terms of passing yards, just so you know, he's second behind C.J. Stroud. But third is Tua, and he's, le- he's nine yards behind him, and he's played one less game. Jared Goff is basically 180 yards behind him, one less game. Dak Prescott is 220-something yards behind him, played one less game. Josh Allen, same thing, 200-some yards behind Sam Howell, one less game. Same thing with Brock Purdy. Same thing with Patrick Mahomes. Same thing with Justin Herbert. Same thing with Trevor Lawrence, who's now going to miss games. Sam Howell is not going to lead the league in passing yards when we get to the end of the year. He's not. He's going to be in the top seven or eight, which is really impressive. But Sam Howell's other numbers, if I told you like we've talked about before, he's going to be 23rd in passer rating, 21st in QBR. He's going to lead the league in sacks allowed, lead the league in interceptions. He's going to be 14th in completion percentage. You'd say, well, of course we're drafting a quarterback if we have an opportunity to do it in 2024. And that's where you would be, you know, missing the context of having watched him play and watching him play. He looks better than the numbers. He has looked better than the sack numbers, the interception numbers, the QBR number, the passer rating number in part, because we're comparing it to what we've had. We do that a lot as a fan base is like, Oh my God, but, oh my God, what? He's better than Taylor Heineke? Well, of course he is. He's better than Carson Wentz? I would hope so with, with the way Wentz played last year. I mean, and no one else has signed him. Actually, did he sign? Did the Rams sign him? Is he on the Rams team? Yeah, I believe he's on the Rams team. Yeah, finally. Um, I think we've got a long way to go on the Sam Howell conversation. He's got four games left to play. Um, I mean, Billy, was it Billy who said yesterday he wished that Sam would get pulled? Somebody, some caller said, you should pull Sam Howell right now. You know what you have. Um, you're not going to learn anything more. I don't know if that's true. All right. Um, a couple things that I wanted to get to before we get to, uh, our guest list today, which includes Bob Weschusen from ESPN, Charch at 1125, Sands at 12. Um, we will, um... Uh, we will get to the story that we started to get to at the very end of the show yesterday, which was a pretty in-depth story um, by John Kime and Jeremy Fowler on ESPN. And there was a lot in there on Eric Bieniemy, and we got to get to some of it and some of the quotes about Eric Bieniemy. We'll do that starting next on the Kevin Sheehan Show. Team 980 the team980.com. We are also free and live on the Odyssey app
3: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
4: So yesterday, Jeremy Fowler and John Keim had a story on ESPN.com, and we Sort of got it during the show, and we we talked a little bit about it at the very end of the show. Very little about it. But for those that didn't, you know, invest the time to read it, I'm going to give you some of the highlights of it. Um, And I think, actually, the highlight of it is all of the stuff... On Eric Bienemy, which I will get to in a moment, because the story actually starts with sort of a description in a section of the story about the draft deadline and how that all came about and Josh Harris's role in that particular um, decision to end up trading Chase Young and Montez Sweat. Now, I think a lot of us knew going into it that Chase Young was a really good possibility to be dealt. Um, this was something ultimately that they have wanted to do for a while. They probably would have done it before the draft last April had they gotten a decent offer, uh, but they didn't. And they hoped that he could play well enough that they could get a fairly hefty price. At the trade deadline. And, you know, I think they were hopeful they could get a second round pick, maybe even a package of a second and fourth. I think we talked about this that we had information that, you know, Chicago was interested it, it, at first uh, in Chase Young um, for something resembling the Montez sweat package. But the medical scared some teams off, including San Francisco, from offering more than what they ultimately offered. Uh, but uh, the part of the story that I wanted to read to you is that. This was not a pleasant day for the coaching staff, um, as it related to sweat specifically. But with respect to Harris, um, they wrote that you know Ron Rivera would have final say on personnel, but the boss, as in Josh Harris, would have to weigh in before any moves occurred, and no one at the park, knew exactly what that boss, a little more than three months into his tenure, was thinking. New owner Josh Harris, meeting remotely with his football brain trust, faced his first big football decision since he'd been approved as owner on July 20th. Harris emphasized he was open to acquiring future draft capital on the trade market, particularly with Sweat and Young, according to front office and team sources. And then there is a quote in here um, from a front office slash team source. Harris didn't, quote, roll in as a sheriff, closed quote, as the source put it, in line with the owner's philosophy of leaning on staff to make recommendations before major decisions are made. Quote, he gave his opinion, everyone was heard, and we landed in a fair spot, closed quote. Then Keim and Fowler write, but when you're calling the shots, a suggestion can often be taken as an edict. Sweat and Young were gone within hours of the meeting dealt to Chicago and San Francisco for second and third round picks respectively. Within league circles, the terms of the trades were viewed as favorable to the commanders. But that didn't mean it felt like a win for Mayhew, Herney, or Rivera. Here's a quote from somebody in personnel with the organization in a text to ESPN on the evening of October 30th. Quote, Today has not been a good day. Closed quote. So why wasn't it a good day? Well, it's simple. They didn't want to trade sweat. And they didn't want to trade sweat because they still had aspirations, some would say delusions, of competing for the postseason after that loss to Philadelphia and falling to 3-5 and five at the time. Uh, and here's uh, a line from Kime and Fowler's story. Coaches, including, including Rivera and since-fired defensive coordinator Jack Del Rio especially, wanted to keep sweat. And basically, they knew that they had to have enough pieces to salvage the season, and they were ridding themselves of a very important piece in Montez Sweat. That's not, you know, a big reveal for all of us because we've known that, you know, Ron essentially said it, you know, after they the trade in, in the first comments that Sweat wasn't necessarily someone that they wanted to part with, but they got too good of an offer. A second-round pick from a team that will finish, more likely than not, very high up in the draft. So that second-round pick is going to be an early second-round pick, which will now be coupled with their own very early second-round pick, uh, which will be nice. Um, So that was kind of the thing on trade deadline day, which... The you know what we learned was is that the owner was involved and the owner made a suggestion and they reacted to that suggestion, which is essentially the implication in the story. That, you know, he gave his opinion, everyone was heard, but when you're calling the shots, a suggestion can often be taken as an edict. And again, the suggestion was he emphasized, Harris did, that he was open to acquiring future draft capital on the trade market, particularly with Sweat and Young. So there you go. And uh, is no one's really that upset about what they did, and I think the reaction to it has been largely pretty positive. I think that it was a little bit surprising that they didn't get more than a late third-round compensatory pick for Chase Young for a lot of people, You know, it's it's a borderline fourth round pick, and I know many of you wanted to continue to see Chase Young develop. That there was still a chance. We were starting to see a glimpse of him healthy. He was, you know, he had some good pass rush pressure rates. Um, He was certainly playing better than the last time we had seen him entering a full time season in 2021. Uh, But they didn't want him. They haven't wanted him in a while. Um, and what they got back for sweat for a player that you may have been forced to franchise tag to keep, and you never want to start going down that path of a franchise tag, was pretty favorable for Montez Sweat to get a second rounder that is closer to the end of the first round than you know what they got for Chase Young, which is closer to the beginning of the fourth round. So then. John and Jeremy Fowler got into a lot on Eric Bianami. And I want to get to that and we'll do that when we come back. Kevin Sheehan Show, the Team 980 and the Team 980.com.
0: NBA hoops last night. Wizards lose to Philadelphia 131 to 126. Joel Embiid goes off for 50 points and 13 rebounds. In 38 minutes, you might remember earlier in the season, these two teams matched up, and Embiid went for 48. So a nice, cool average of 49 points for Joel Embiid in his last two games against the Wizards. Chirps beat Penn State in overtime in college hoops, 81-75. to Jameer Young goes for 28-8. and Juju Reese, 24 points and 15 rebounds. Big news in the world of golf. John Rahm has agreed to join the Live Tour. It's expected that an official announcement will come later this week.
4: So John Keim and Jeremy Fowler wrote this very long story on ESPN, uh, which we just talked initially about the first section of the story, which was you know how the whole trade deadline and the trades of Chase Young and Montez Sweat specifically came together and and Harris's role, Josh Harris's role in that. Um, but what they wrote the most about was Eric Bieniemy uh, and Sam Howell together, kind of. But it really ended up being more about Eric Biennemi and I'm gonna read from some of the story and then uh, we'll talk about it a little bit. Um, they talked, you know, at the beginning of this section about the nice job that Hal's done and Bienemy's role in that, and then they write Rivera's wager on the 54-year-old coach has been something less than an instant jackpot. Rivera rel- relinquished a degree of power and, by extension, some authority within the team by bringing in Bienemy. Rivera wanted to shake things up after the firing of previous offensive coordinator Scott Turner by giving Bienemy influence over the team's regular season practice and meeting schedules, among other areas. Like the Chiefs, the Commanders have switched to a Monday off day during game weeks instead of the customary Tuesday. Some players, including team veterans and those with families, have not warmed to it. One player grumbled, quote, it's what the enemy wants, closed quote. Among the players' other issues early in the year, per team sources, was was that afternoon offensive meetings frequently ran long and got in the way if players needed treatment. Biennemi's initial concession was to allow players to use foam rollers on the floor of the meeting rooms to save time, per team source. In recent weeks, Biennemi has relaxed some of those demands, including shortening Wednesday practices from two hours to closer to an hour and a half. One player told ESPN, quote, he's gotten better at respecting our time. Closed quote. Multiple sources said Biennemi and the offensive coaches work well past midnight some nights during the week, less than standard practice in an NFL that typically includes early morning starts to the workday. One member of the staff said while the long hours are a testament to Biennemi's stamina, the pace is nearly impossible to to maintain. Um, Biennemi acknowledged the demands on the staff, but said they were part of establishing a winning culture. Quote, when you are a new staff, everybody's getting to know each other. We're establishing a culture of accountability. So in order for us to be an example of what we want for our team and and what we want our offense to be, we have to set the groundwork. So that was a lot of the Biennemi, let's just say, you know, cutting to the chase on this, Beanie's style certainly hasn't been an overwhelming favorite of many in that building. Now, you might say and I might say as well, too bad. You know, this was this was, you know, too soft, too laissez-faire, too um, you know, and, and what have you won? You guys have won nothing. This guy's got two rings on his finger from the last 5 years on his fingers. So Maybe you need a kick in the ass. Maybe the hours have to be longer. Maybe family time isn't going to be important until we start winning games. But I think you know as much of of Eric Bien-Aimé's, um, you know attempt to create a new culture uh, that the style in doing it, um, the approach to doing it, I I think ultimately has been what has not been necessarily well received by everybody you know I'm not saying that there aren't p- p- players out there and coaches out there that aren't saying go get them you know I'm, I'm with you I'm with you General Patton let's go get them uh, but it's been an issue for some again you might say and I actually would lean in this direction too bad you guys have won nothing let's try it this way and see if this works but I think, you know, this portion of the story and a lot of other things that have come out, going back to camp with Ron, I think, you know, we know why teams avoided going down the path of hiring Eric Bianomi and Washington was his only option in the offseason. And that's why I said during the offseason, I don't know why so many of you are describing this as some sort of coup, like, oh my God, we got Eric Bianomi. No one else wanted him. No one else was offering him the gig. Only Washington. I would imagine Andy Reid would have taken him back, but probably in a different role because Matt Nagy was Mahomes' guy, according to all the Kansas City people. Then you get to kind of the overall substance of the offense, and some of the disconnects there, including you know, some comments from players about Ron not being involved enough. I'll read some of that to you when we come back. And then if you want to weigh in on this, we'll open it up for phone calls on this. 301-230-0980, 301 230 I think, and I'll read the other part of this, which deals with kind of the offense and the the, 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 the passing attempts and the sacks taken, etc. Um, but I, I'd love your reaction to uh, to some of this as well if you want to weigh in. 3012300980. It's the Kevin Sheehan show on the team 980 the team980.com. We are also free and live on the Odyssey app.
3: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.